I told him which one I had chosen. And I said, it's 19 verses. Maybe I should like just do part of it. And he said, no, when you do a psalm, you got to do it all. So buckle in. So um, we're going to read Psalm 116. That's where we'll be primarily today. So if you open your copy of God's Word, uh, that is where we'll be. Um, and the sermon I titled it is Dedication. So let's, let's read together. Psalm 116 says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of shale laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. And then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Father, we do pray that as we look at your word that you would uh, open our hearts and our, open our minds, help us to see uh, what you have preserve for us, help us to learn from this, help us not to just be filled with knowledge, but filled with love for you, filled with energy to go out of this place, to live for you, to, as the psalmist ends, to praise you. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. I love pizza. Good crust, just the right amount of sauce, mozzarella, maybe some bacon, and of course, pineapple. I love pizza, don't you? Do you know what else? I love sports. Oh, and, and I love my wife and sons, and of course, I love the Lord too. Does something about those statements I just made seem off to you? The language is similar, but do you think, do you hope, that there's a difference between my love for pizza and sports and my love for my family and God? Yeah. I hope so. Our psalm this, from this morning, Psalm 116, starts out with a statement that caught my attention. It says, I love the Lord. I love the Lord. How important is this? Well, what's the great commandment? Audience participation. Right, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. If 
we don't do this, we can't really love our neighbor or even ourselves rightly. We won't be moved to go out into the world and make followers of Jesus. Our desire to flee sin and obey the Lord will be low if it even exists. When we don't love the Lord with all our heart, with all our soul, with all of our mind, and with all our strength, we're not functioning properly, like a wheel that doesn't roll or a bird that can't sing. We have got to love the Lord. We're incomplete when we don't love him as we ought because we were created to have that loving relationship with our creator. Even more than this, though, God is completely worthy of love. But what does it really mean to love the Lord? Let's dig into Psalm 116 a little further and see what God tells us about this ultimate question. I love the Lord. The English is such a matter-of-fact statement. Of course, the writer of Psalm 16 loves the Lord. It's kind of a requirement to have your work put in the Bible, isn't it? Love the Lord. The statement's so obvious and so straightforward, even a little nonchalant. It does seem to be almost like saying, I love pizza. Maybe this is because we overuse and miss the word, misuse the word love in our language. So saying I love something loses its strength. When you love pizza, love your dog, love your spouse, and love God, there is no verbal difference, is there? Now, as I mentioned at the start, hopefully there's a huge difference between the strength and breadth of the love for these things, but using the same word for each can rob some of the meaning. But in Hebrew, this statement is not just some throwaway line, and it's certainly not some emotional statement of the moment that changes when circumstances change, as the word can often be used in relationships in our culture today. In fact, the original Hebrew for this first line could be more directly translated as, I dedicate myself. That's it. I dedicate myself. Dedication. What kinds of pictures come to your mind when you hear the word dedication? What are some of the examples that you think of? I think of a soldier going through the rigors of boot camp or of an athlete training to compete. I think of Thomas Edison famously failing thousands of times in his efforts to invent the light bulb. I think of a parent getting up in the middle of the night to help a sick child. I even think of our dog Zeus standing patiently in the kitchen when carrots or lettuce are being chopped, waiting, waiting for something to drop or something to be given to him. True dogged determination. Think about what it means to dedicate yourself. When you dedicate yourself, you are committed. You don't just talk, you do. You don't just look for the easy way, you look for the best way, sometimes the only way. You don't quit, you overcome obstacles and keep pushing on. When you dedicate yourself, you pour yourself into it, whatever it is. So if we start right here with this statement, I dedicate myself, we have to ask two important questions. The first question, as a rock and blues guitarist once famously saying, is, who do you love? If the psalm writer or you and I are going to dedicate ourselves to someone, we need to know who that person is, who they really are. And the way the psalm is originally written, the writer actually just says, I love, or I dedicate myself. The who is not directly stated as the object of the verb. But very quickly we see who the writer is loving and dedicating himself to. 
Let's look at what comes next in verse 1 and 2. It says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. The English says, he has heard. The original Hebrew might sound something like this. I dedicate myself because the Lord would listen to my voice, my plea. So the dedication is clearly to the Lord God. That's where it's directed. And this dedication to or love for God is personal. God God is not just a far off inventor of universes who wound this one up and walked away to do some other things. He's close. The fancy way to say this is that God is imminent. In Psalm 139, if we look at Psalm 139, David beautifully captures this quality of God when he writes in verses 7 through 10. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. On top of this, Jesus himself promises, I am with you always to the end of the age. God is close. So when the psalm writer writes that the Lord heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, he inclined his ear to me, he is telling about a God who is close and who gives personal attention to each of us. Think about that. The creator of the universe actually listens to your voice. Not just hears, but he inclines his ear. He bends his ear toward us in our direction. We never have to feel alone or like nobody listens to us or nobody understands or cares. God is actively listening when we speak to him. But note that the writer talks about calling out to the Lord in verse 4. We can't hear something that we, that's not there, can we? We can't listen to someone if they don't speak to us. In the same way, if we don't call out to God, we certainly can't expect to notice his closeness and his attentive, attentiveness to our voice. He is a God who hears, no question about it. The question really is, are we people who call out to him? So why did the writer call out to the Lord? Look back at verse 3. He says, the snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. One commentator wrote that in Old Testament poetry, death and Sheol are depicted as aggressive, clutching at the living to waste them with sickness or crush them with despondency, almost like a monster reaching out with its tentacles to grab and to choke and to drag people to death. We don't know all of the details of what the psalm writer was going through, but he says he was in great distress and anguish. He felt like the snares of death were all around him. In the next verse, in verse 4, he writes that then he called on the name of the Lord and said, O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Sometimes we wait until then to call out to God, don't we? But even then, thankfully, God doesn't say, too late, should have contacted me earlier. God listens to us 
even then. The psalm writer's soul was in danger and he needed rescue by the only one who could save him. And he called out to God to rescue his soul then. We can also see that the psalm writer is not praying about being saved from God's wrath over his sin, though this is of great importance. He's in profound distress and anguish, like death is reaching out to strangle him. But he doesn't tell us about praying for his body or his circumstances or even about being forgiven and going to heaven. Instead, he asks that his soul be rescued. Rescued from what? Well, consider your own life. Have you ever been in distress or anguish, maybe even feeling like you were going to die? It's at those times I wonder if the biggest danger to us are matters of the soul. For example, when we're in distress, we might doubt God's goodness, love, or power. We may not believe he's near. We may fear what will happen. We might become angry or envious or vengeful. We can become self-absorbed. We might even lose hope. We may or may not be in danger of dying physically or even eternally, but our souls have been trapped in a snare and are being strangled nonetheless. At times like these, it's our souls that desperately need deliverance, don't they? So let's jump way ahead for a moment. Look at verse 15 with me. Here the writer gives us a glimpse of how God thinks about our souls. It says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. The Lord considers his children by faith to be precious. Precious implies costly. Your physical life and your soul don't only matter to God, they are costly to him. Remember, God loves the world so much that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Of the close to eight billion people on this planet, God hears you. God turns his ear or his attention to you, and you are precious to him, so precious that he actually gave his son to die for you. How great is this? It's so great that the psalm writer resolves to call on the Lord as long as I live. If we jump back to verse 2. God considers us precious. God hears us when we call out to him. God listens and delivers our souls from death and anguish. This is a God who deserves our dedication. How could we not love him? The writer doesn't just stop here and telling us about the one who he is dedicated to. Remember, we're talking about who is this God. If we're going to dedicate our lives, ourselves to something, we need to know who. Jumping back to verses 5 through 7 with me. Here the, the writer describes the character of God. The Lord is near and he hears, and these are good things precisely because of his character. Who is the Lord? He's gracious. He gives good things despite our sinfulness. Who is the Lord? He is merciful. He's willing to forgive. Did you catch that I skipped something? What's sandwiched between these two descriptions that we may be naturally drawn to? Who is the Lord? 
he is righteous. He does what is right and hates what's against his character. People want a gracious and merciful God, but those characteristics don't make any sense apart from his righteousness, do they? Grace isn't grace if we deserve it or earn it. Mercy isn't mercy if there are no sins or if they're no big deal to God. And righteousness is not truly righteousness if it changes with the times and circumstances or is dependent on a person's experience or culture. The writer of the psalm calls to the Lord, the same one who said in Exodus 34, 6 through 7, do you remember this? I memorized it. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving, I lost myself, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Grace, mercy, righteousness, the character of God. And notice that this, the writer of Psalm 116 says that this is our God, not just the God or a God. Deliverance is a result of God's character and the result of the relationship with God that the psalmist has and the people of Israel had. In verses 6 and 7, we see other aspects of the character of God. The Lord preserves and rescues those who are humble. When a person recognizes their need and calls out to the Lord, the Lord acts. He is a savior. It also says the Lord is our rest. The writer was experiencing profound, life-crushing distress and anguish. One of his greatest needs was rest. And he tells himself to return to the one who is the rest, his rest. If you and I want peace, if we want rest in life, then the Lord is the one to whom we need to return because he deals so bountifully, so generously with us. God is merciful. He is gracious. He is righteous. He saves. He is peace and rest for our souls. Love this God. Be dedicated to the Lord. The writer tells us one more thing about who exactly this God he loves is. The writer is dedicated to a powerful and compassionate God. Let's read verse 8. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from stumbling. Here the writer tells how his soul has been delivered from death. Have you ever had what you would consider a close call? A time where you may have been danger, in danger of dying, but somehow did not. Some of you I know led some pretty wild and crazy lives as a youth, or maybe even now. Okay. Looking back, we're always thankful for our lives having been preserved, aren't we? But deep down, we know that it's only temporary, temporary, right? Death is a reality in this world that we are powerless to stop. But part of the gospel, the good news, is that God, through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, delivers our soul from death. When we trust in the work of Jesus on our behalf, death is no longer unknown or final. It's a defeated enemy. Look at me with, look with me at what Isaiah says so powerfully. Isaiah 25, 7 through 9 says, 
and he will swallow up on this mountain and cover it, the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. It will be said on that, for the Lord has spoken, it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The deliverance that God provides through Jesus is not just another close call with death. Physical death before Jesus comes again is a reality we'll face. But the soul of the believer has been once and for all delivered from death. Psalm 116, 8 through 9, shows this contrast between what was true and what is true. Death, tears, and stumbling are our destiny apart from God. These are the things that entangle us and distress us. They are the results of sin in the world and sin in our hearts. And God offers deliverance from these things when we call out to him. We can experience some of that rescue even now. For example, we can have real forgiveness and eternal hope right now, comfort when we're hurting right now, and divine guidance when we're lost and confused right now. But the fullness of the promise comes when instead of stumbling through the valley of the shadow of death, we walk before the Lord, as the psalmist says, in the land of the living. In Hebrew, the, the writer literally writes the lands of the living. Did you catch the plural, lands? This is suggesting a fullness of life and a range of possibilities. Tears, pain, death, sin, and evil limit so much and cannot be a part of an actual full life and range of possibilities, can they? When we're delivered by God, we are given a new life, a full life. We're not brought to a place of restriction and repression that's often the caricature of our day. Neither are we brought to a place of anything goes where all we have to do is follow our hearts. That's Disney World. Instead, we're brought out to a place called the lands of the living where we can walk before the Lord who listens and sees. A real place where we can walk before the Lord who is merciful, gracious, righteous, and powerful. It's a place where we can walk before the Lord who saves and who saved us in Christ Jesus. This savior is who the writer of Psalm 16 loves. This is who he is dedicated to. How about you and I? Is this God worthy of our dedication? Is he worthy? As, he, as we sang earlier, he is. So now we know more about who the writer loves, who he's dedicated to, which leads us to the second question. How do you love the Lord? How does the writer dedicate himself to the Lord? Take a look with me at verses 10 and 11. It says, I believed even when I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. Here we see the posture or stance of the person who's dedicated to the Lord. I believe, says the writer. There's a popular sign that you may have seen around town here for a few years. It says, believe. That's it. Believe. Believe what? Believe who? I guess it may not matter to the sign maker. 
but it matters, right? Verse 10 is not like this sign. There's an emphasis on believing or trusting, but the object of that trust is clearly the Lord. It's not in circumstances because the psalmist already wrote, I'm greatly afflicted, right? The pressure of his circumstances was immense, so he couldn't trust in his circumstances. He's referring back to what he previously wrote about who God is and how God delivered him. His trust in God is demonstrated in the fact that he called out to God in the middle of his suffering. And notice that he writes, I believed even when I spoke, I'm greatly afflicted. He actually spoke about his suffering. But it's not a, my life is so hard, you should pity me or do something about it kind of statement, right? That's complaining. Rather, it sounds like an honest statement of the facts because he connects his admission with, I believed even when I spoke. The writer trusted the Lord even though he was suffering the affliction of distress and anguish. We need to remember it's okay for us to be honest with God and even honest with each other about our hard times. To avoid the sin of complaining though, we should just check ourselves to see if we're trusting in the Lord in the middle of that affliction. We see also a contrast in verse 11. The writer writes, all mankind are liars. Wow, tell us how you really feel. <laughs> but the writer's not just down on people because he's been hurt by them. What we can see here is the difference between trusting in God and trusting in people. Human loyalty and help are limited and tainted. Even self-reliance is deceptive because all mankind are liars, even we ourselves. In times of trouble and great affliction, when, we're all, when we are alarmed, we can't seek ultimate refuge in ourselves or in other people. If we do, we will eventually end up disappointed in the results. Only God will never disappoint when we trust him. And trusting doesn't mean understanding everything either. There are many things in life we trust without understanding fully. Think about electricity, for example. We trust it to turn on our lights and run our refrigerators without understanding all about it, don't we? Trusting in the Lord doesn't mean understanding everything about him and his design for our lives. Rather, it is a reliance on his character, his goodness, his mercy, grace, power, love, nearness, and so on. As we remember the character of God, who he is, we can learn to trust him in everything he does. So how do we love God? What is a sign of dedication to him? Verses 10 and 11 show us that dedication is seen through trusting in the Lord no matter what. Is that our posture or our attitude? God alone will always prove to be trustworthy. From the posture of love, the psalm writer moves into the response of love. If we look at verse 12, he asks, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? The writer wants to return something to the God who's been so good to listen to him and save him. But as the old question goes, what do you give to the person who has everything? This is literally true about God, isn't it? So the writer doesn't even try to give an object. Instead, in verse 13, through the beginning of verse 19, he emphasizes through repetition the response of surrender as a demonstration of God's love 
of, of his love and dedication. So look at verses 13 and 17 with me. So you're going to kind of jump from one to the other for this first repetition. He first says that he will lift up the cup of salvation in verse 13. And similarly, in verse 17, he says he'll offer the sacrifice of thanksgiving. The cup of salvation is a reference to the drink offering we can read about if we went to Exodus or Leviticus, which we don't have time to do today. Psalm 116 is a praise psalm that's recited after Passover feast in Jewish tradition. If you remember, the Passover is a celebration remembering how the Lord God delivered the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt by his great power and his love. And even though Psalm 116 doesn't mention the Israelite time in Egypt at all, or nor was it even written near that time, we can see how some of the thoughts and feelings conveyed in the psalm might connect to the time of distress and deliverance in Israel's history. And both the celebration of Passover and Psalm 116 focused on the God who saves. So when we read about the sacrifice of thanksgiving and the cup of salvation, what's being referred to is a ceremony of thanksgiving. It's a time of remembering what God has done for his people, not only when he brought them out of Egypt, but throughout their lives too. They take time to remember this together. And gratefulness is not only expressed then, but the time of remembering would also kindle fresh thankfulness in their hearts. It's also a ceremony that physically demonstrates reliance on the Lord going forward. They would take a wine in a cup and pour it out before the Lord. It wasn't so that the Lord could drink it. He has no need of food or drink. Instead, this was a physical reminder that what we have is provided by God. It's his to give to us in whatever measure and by whatever means he chooses. When they poured it out on the altar, it was a recognition of this complete reliance on the Lord to provide everything, past, present, and future. The second half of verses 13 and 17 show that this sacrament or ceremony goes hand in hand with a kind of proclamation of the word of God. It's also where we can find the second repetition the writer uses. The psalm writer twice says, I will call on the name of the Lord. We read in Exodus 34, 6 through 7 earlier, calling on the name of the Lord is the proclamation of who God has revealed himself to be, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. But this formal demonstration of thankfulness and reliance and proclamation of the Lord don't just happen in the privacy of one's home, in the secrecy of one's mind or heart, or in any old place that we happen to choose to be. Take a look at verses 14 and 18 with me for the third repetition. Here the writer repeats, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. The writer is going to fulfill whatever promises to the Lord that he has made in his distress. And he's going to do this in the presence of all his people. He gets more specific at the beginning of verse 19. He says, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the course of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. The love of the Lord is not just a private matter between the writer and God. It's something to be shared with God's people. Our relationship with God needs to be a personal relationship, but not a private one. 
The Lord wants us to be together, but the togetherness is not just a matter of religious duty. When we are together, we are reminding each other of who the Lord is and of what the Lord has done. We're demonstrating our thankfulness to God and reliance on him. We're encouraging one another to press on in our trust in him. We aren't meant to do that all alone. Dedication to the Lord, our love for the Lord, is meant to grow in the presence of all his people. The final repetition that the writer uses to help us see how we dedicate ourselves to the Lord is found in verse 16. He writes, O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You've loosed my bonds. Think about this. The writer's clearly stating his relationship to God. The writer identifies himself as a servant of the Lord. A servant does what his master requires him to do. And as Jesus said in a different context, we cannot serve two masters. By definition, the servant is dedicated to one master. And the writer confirms his position by repeating it and clarifying that he has been born into this relationship, the son of God's maidservant. But this servanthood is not something to be scorned or abandoned at first opportunity. The writer knows that the Lord will protect his servants. He has experienced the Lord as a deliverer. He knows that he is precious to the Lord and the Lord has loosed his bonds. The bonds of the Lord are not the same as the bonds that the writer alluded to in verse three that were seeking to strangle him. Despite his servanthood, he's free. And then we're left with the last line of Psalm 116. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Preacher's almost done. This is the purpose and privilege of the believer. How do you love the Lord? Speak out. That's what praise ultimately is. Tell about who God is. Tell about what he's done. Tell about his promises. Tell about his character. And as we tell the world, we're pointing to a God who is worthy of all of our attention, all of our trust, all of our dedication, all of our love. So what's the final answer to the second question, how do we love the Lord? Or what does it look like to be dedicated to the Lord? Psalm 116, 12 through 19 gives us three things to do. Trust, surrender, and praise. When we trust him, we give up our, on our illusion of control and remember who he is. And we look to him for deliverance. When we surrender, we give him thanks, acknowledge our reliance on him, and rejoice in the freedom of our servanthood to someone who calls us precious. When we praise, we tell of his greatness. And we do all of these things in the presence of all his people. We cannot just be secret lovers of the Lord, dedicated in the privacy of our hearts. I love the Lord. It's a simple statement, isn't it? But we know it's not just meant to be a statement, right? It really means that we are dedicated. Let's not forget who we are dedicated to. We are dedicated to a God who listens, dedicated to a God who is gracious, merciful, and righteous, dedicated to a God who saves us so that we can walk with him forever. 
And let us not forget to trust him, to surrender all to him, and to speak about him whenever and wherever we can. The circumstances will change in our, each of our lives, and whether they be hard or easy, full of distress or full of joy, we need to gather and encourage one another in this life of faith. Pour yourself into this life of faith. Be dedicated to the Lord who calls us to do this together. And as he himself said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all your strength. Hallelujah.